Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. Thinking heart disease only occurs at an older age is both untrue and dangerous to your health. Rhythm and flow, understanding the cardiovascular system. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Health information based on science, built on trust. Good evening and welcome to the 21st season of On Call with the Prairie Doc, medical information based on science, built on trust. Thank you for joining us tonight. I'm Dr. Kelly Evans-Hullinger, your Prairie Doc host. Joining us in the studio this evening on the campus of South Dakota State University in Brookings are Dr. John Wagoner and Dr. Thomas Waterbury, both from North Central Heart. Welcome guys, thanks for coming up to Brookings tonight. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourselves and, and paths of training, both cardiologists. Dr. Wagoner, where, where did you go to get all your medical training and how'd you end up back in Sioux Falls, South Dakota? Yeah, so I did my undergrad uh, education in University of North Dakota in Grand Forks and stayed mm -hmm. there for medical school. Um, once I finished there, I went out to Durham, North Carolina at Duke University for my medicine training. And then from there, I spent five years at the Cleveland Clinic doing general cardiology. Uh, interventional cardiology and an extra year in structural intervention, so percutaneous valve surgeries. Mm -hmm. Great. How about you, Dr. Waterbury? So I did undergrad at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, and mm -hmm. from there I did medical school at University of Iowa in Iowa City, and then went up to Rochester, Minnesota at Mayo Clinic for internal medicine residency, cardiology fellowship, and then stayed there and did interventional training as well. Yeah, great. Um, so both interventional cardiologists. What does an interventional cardiologist do that people might not know about? Yeah, so interventional cardiologists, we do diagnostic coronary angiography, angiography, so looking at the heart arteries percutaneously through mm -hmm. a hole in your wrist or a hole in your groin, however you want to say it. Um, we also do angioplasty and intervention, so placing stents in the heart arteries. And that's, you know, part of it. We do, you know, uh, right heart catheterization, so looking at the pressures in the mm -hmm. heart, and then you know, there's other things we can do with valve therapies and, you know, PFO closure, so closing holes in the heart and things like that. So yeah. a lot of different things we can do. Right, but if you or your loved one find yourself in a cath lab having a heart attack, it's someone like you that's in there taking care of them, right? Right, yeah. right. right. We spend a lot of time in clinic seeing patients yeah. though as well and working on the preventative side of things mm -hmm. um, in addition to doing procedures. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions for tonight's discussion about cardiovascular health. Viewers can t contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org, or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover, and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Dot gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. So let's get to some questions. We've already got some rolling in. Um, 
this is an, I'll start with this first one. With all the research and improvements in cardiac care, why are we still seeing frequent cardiac disease? Has there been an increase or decrease in the past 10 years um, in coronary artery disease? So I think everyone knows that this is kind of number one cause of death in the US and um, much of the world. Um, is that getting better or worse, do you think, Tom? Uh, I I think there's still there's still plenty of coronary disease out there. Mm -hmm. Our strategies and medications for preventing coronary disease uh, certainly have improved over time, but there's also a strong genetic component to coronary mm -hmm. artery disease that you know at this point we can't modify. Um, in addition to some you know several lifestyle factors, but patients are also living longer yeah. as well, and so you know later in life we you know see more coronary artery disease as you get more advanced in age. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a combination of factors there, but. You know, certainly, yeah, it still remains a prevalent issue um, in our nation and in the world. Yeah. Um, John, if you had to pick one thing that you could tell someone to help decrease their risk fact, risk of heart disease, what would it be? Stop smoking. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so smoking is one of the biggest risk factors for any type of, whether it's coronary artery disease or peripheral vascular mm -hmm. disease. And not that I would tell patients to do this, but if you stopped all your medications, but you stopped smoking, you reduce your risk by 50%. So that's really the big thing is if you're smoking, stop completely. Not, I smoke one cigarette yeah. every other day or something like that, get off of it completely. You do yourself a lot of, yeah. a lot of good. It's a good reminder. I think we, everyone thinks of things like lung cancer, lung mm -hmm. disease, but huge risk factor for vascular disease. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good. Um, we have an online view, viewer who was once diagnosed with scarlet fever, treated with antibiotics, um, and wonders about an abnormal EKG. Um, so maybe let's let's talk a little bit about rheumatic fever, I guess, which maybe is a, a different entity, but we don't see it much anymore. But right. classically, what kind of things could rheumatic fever cause? Right, so I mean, the biggest thing that, that we see or think of, and we don't see it so much in the US mm -hmm. anymore, but you know, still seen in third world countries, um, is valvular disease, and it causes really thickening and stiffening of the valves and causes something we call stenosis there. Uh, later in life. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the biggest thing. In terms of an abnormal EKG, you know, with, with a history of scarlet fever, you know, probably just need to see a physician and have a, you know, good comprehensive cardiac exam. Mm -hmm. And if there's some abnormalities on the exam, then maybe worthwhile doing some imaging of the heart to look into that a little bit further. Yeah, abnormal EKG can mean so many things. Um, we have a viewer calling in saying they have AFib caused by a valve problem. This person is on warfarin, but wonders if there's any other treatment for this condition specifically caused by heart valve problems. It's a great question. What That's would you say question. about that, John? Yeah, yeah, so there's a lot of different uh, valve problems that can cause atrial right. fibrillation and the treatment for, so if you're on warfarin, you're trying to prevent stroke related to the atrial fibrillation. If you have mitral stenosis, that's called valvular atrial fibrillation, mm -hmm. and you know that's where somebody needs to be on warfarin versus the other blood thinners like an Eliquis or mm -hmm. a Xeralto, which you might hear about on the TV. Yeah. Um, if you have mitral regurgitation that causes atrial fibrillation, it may mean that you need something fixed with that valve, mm -hmm. but those are really the two types of valve problems that can cause um, atrial fibrillation. Yeah. You know. Do you, are there studies ongoing about mitral stenosis, AFib, and these other blood thinners? Will we ever have something that's not warfarin for those patients, do you think? We haven't seen that yet, yeah. but you know, patients who have had valve repairs or regurgitation, mm -hmm. we don't necessarily consider valvular right. AFib, so they're still okay to be on um, uh, Eliquis or the, the you know, oral right. novel anti-coagulants. You know, yeah. so. And the other piece of that is if you, know, if you have 
valve disease has been fixed with a mechanical prosthesis. Yeah. Still have to be on warfarin. Yeah. We were at North Central Heart, we were a, a site for the product 10A trial mm -hmm. uh, that closed early, looking at Eliquis versus warfarin for aortic valve, a certain aortic valve prosthesis that mm -hmm. was a mechanical prosthesis and warfarin was still superior due to increased events in Eliquis. So for right now, mm -hmm. you know, it's still warfarin for yeah. patients who have a mechanical prosthesis. Yeah. yeah. And it, you know, if atrial fibrillation is related to that. Right, right. The new drugs can be great for some people, but it looks like there's still gonna be a place for warfarin yeah. for right. a long time to come, huh? Okay. Right. Um, we have a caller who would like to know the consequence of having a slow leak from the aortic valve and what treatments are available for it. So we'll assume that means aortic regurgitation. Can you comment on a little bit about that? Yeah, so again, aortic regurgitation is sometimes not uncommon, and if it's just a, a trivial or a mild leak that something can be washed and generally doesn't cause any issues over time, mm -hmm. um, we do serial imaging, so serial echocardiograms to follow that. Where people can get into trouble if you have severe aortic regurgitation that is either causing symptoms or if you're not having symptoms but it's causing changes on the function of the heart. Mm -hmm. And that's where we really get concerned about, about that leaky valve. So if you do have regurgitations, something that, you know, depending on how bad it is, you just gotta make sure you do your due diligence and follow up with your doctor or follow up with your cardiologist. Yeah. Yeah. That you know, we see so many the echoes are probably a lot better than they were 10, 20 years ago even. So we pick up on a lot of abnormalities in the valves. Um, yeah. And not everybody ends up needing something for that, but right. they do have to be watched and right. know what symptoms to watch for. Um, we have a viewer from Madison who has what they called an aortic expansion, um, and the physician is watching for any changes. Um, so I, we'll assume that means an enlarged aorta, I guess. What, what do you typically recommend if you find that on an echocardiogram or some other imaging? Yeah, it's not uncommon that we yeah. pick up some enlargement of the ascending or descending aorta on imaging, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's incidental on uh, CT imaging or on our echo. Uh, generally, you know, that's something that we just follow longitudinally over time uh, mm -hmm. until it gets to a certain cutoff where we look at doing an elective repair unless there's some underlying, you know, connective tissue disorder or something that, you know, would require a lower cutoff mm. you know, due to risk of, of complications with that. Um, but generally it's risk factor modification, making sure the blood pressure is under good control. Mm -hmm. Smoking is a big risk factor for yeah. aneurysm formation. So smoke, then need to stop smoking. But generally it's just sort of longitudinal imaging uh, mm -hmm. follow up and making sure that there's not rapid expansion of mm -hmm. the aorta or it's not dialing to the point where we need to be looking at elective surgical repair. Mm -hmm. Sure. All right, we have a viewer who was given a stent at age 50 and got another one in the same vessel at 66. Now 76 and wondering what is the best way to check how well the stents are functioning. Um, so what do we, do we follow up um, people who've had a stent? How do, how do we know if, if they're working or if they're open? Symptoms. Yeah. Yeah, so really outside of, you know, worsening chest pain or dyspnea or shortness of breath when you do activity, there's really no other reason we just check randomly to see if stents are open. Mm -hmm. Outside of having an acute heart attack, you know, stents are only helpful to reduce symptoms. Yeah. Um, so we don't necessarily do stress tests annually. We used to do that yeah. 10, 15 years ago, but you know, recent you know evidence and trials and so forth have shown that that's not helpful. Um, so really, again, we follow symptoms. If you're having symptoms, that'd be a reason to get checked out. Maybe have a stress test, things like that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I feel like I have patients who are disappointed that they're not getting their annual stress test anymore, like they did you yeah. know 10 or 20 yeah. years ago. But there's good reason for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 
Okay, good. Um, let's see, what, um, what would an ablation be appropriate for someone who's not tolerating their atrial fibrillation on certain medications? Um, so, you know, an ablation of this, this abnormal heart rhythm, um, when do we do that, why do we do it? So with, with abnormal heart rhythms, and the most common one we see is atrial fibrillation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the indication to do something for that is if you're having symptoms or you know, have some change in the structure and function of your heart because of it. So in that scenario, we try to do a rhythm control approach to try mm -hmm. to keep patients in normal rhythm. Uh, that can be accomplished one of two ways with a procedure called an ablation where essentially going through a vein usually in the in the leg or through the groin and run a catheter up and map out where those abnormal circuits are coming from in the heart and you know burn them out essentially or burn a scar in there. The other option is antiarrhythmic medications. Some patients, you know, especially younger patients, prefer not to be on medications mm -hmm. long term if they can avoid it. Mm -hmm. In that scenario, ablation is a, a great procedure to to undergo, and um, you know, the technology anymore is is very successful in terms of you know reducing the symptom burden or rhythm burden uh, of things like atrial fibrillation or other mm -hmm. types of tachycardia or abnormal uh, heart rhythms. Um, but also if you've failed medications and are having more issues with recurrent arrhythmia, mm -hmm. uh, ablation can be very, a very effective way to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Good. I think it's important for people to know too that if you are in atrial fibrillation and somebody finds that and you're asymptomatic, just leaving yourself in atrial fibrillation for years and decades can be detrimental later on in life. We, we used to have this idea that our rate control strategy, meaning leaving you in atrial fibrillation because you're feeling good with your heart rate normal was okay. Well, over time, we've noticed that that's lead, led to a lot of mitral regurgitation, mm -hmm. tricuspid regurgitation, heart failure problems. So now I think if you talk to our electrophysiology colleagues, we're a lot more aggressive trying to get people back into a normal heart rhythm, mm -hmm. especially when you're younger. Sure. Yeah. So it depends on the patient to some degree. Yeah. Um, right, yeah. Good. But it's an effective strategy. Yeah. yeah. Good. Um, we have a question about TAVR, so T-A-V-R. Um, can you tell us just what is TAVR? People probably, it's been common enough that a lot of people know someone who's who've had this procedure done. Um, and, and why do we do it and how is it done? Yeah, so TAVR is a procedure we do for patients who have aortic valve stenosis mm -hmm. and typically calcific aortic valve stenosis. So meaning that you've had calcification of your aortic valve that's caused it to be narrow and it doesn't open all the way. And if you're having symptoms because of that, we generally recommend a valve replacement. Historically, that was done with open heart surgery, a sternotomy, where a surgeon's cutting out that diseased valve and sewing in a new mechanical or bioprosthetic valve and so on. But over the past decade or so, a little bit longer than that, we have now a way where we can replace the valve by going through an artery in the leg um, and putting in what's essentially I call a stent valve. So it's a, it's a big stent that has sewn leaflets inside of it. And so you put the stent valve inside your own aortic valve and when you expand it, you blow it up with a balloon or you release it, it pushes your diseased valve to the side of the heart and leaves behind the stent that holds open the narrowing and then working leaflets that are inside that open and close so the valve doesn't leak. Generally now, if you're older than, you could even say 65 or 70, no matter whether you're low, high, or intermediate risk for valve replacement surgically and you're a candidate based mm -hmm. on a number of tests, that's the way we replace aortic valves. And mm -hmm. um, you know we do a lot of them every week now. It's really so. revolutionized yeah. you know, the way we deal with aortic stenosis. Yeah, and fast, I mean, 
I, I feel like I wasn't a resident that long ago, but then it was still just very high-risk people that we were doing right. this in, but it's proven to be effective and had good longevity even for those lower-risk patients. Yeah, 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 and especially for you know folks who were in their upper 80s and 90s yeah. who didn't have an option for treatment 10, 15 years ago, and now we can replace their valve and a lot of times leave the hospital the next day. Yeah. And they're doing great. Whereas the old option was just really risky for those patients. Yep, and a yeah. lot of times it was palliative care, medical yeah. therapy. Yeah. yeah, great, cool. Well, recovering from a cardiovascular episode can be a daunting process, but luckily there is support available for patients. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower learned more about cardiopulmonary rehab. Jesse Walsh is the cardiopulmonary rehab director at Brookings Health System. Cardiopulmonary is cardiac where heart patients have had either bypass or stents or something heart related. The pulmonary is patients that have had trouble with lung problems, uh, COPD, asthma, um, COVID has been a big one this year that we've had. Rehabilitation for cardiopulmonary patients consists of learning and exercise. We use it to make sure that they're not having any problems. If it could be medication, you know, we want to build their strength and endurance up. Um, it's just basically if they have questions, um, we do assessments with them. You know, that might go over the nutrition, the exercise, medication, the psychosocial, kind of how they're doing overall with it. Anyone who has had heart or lung problems can attend these sessions. Each patient will come up, they'll start with their weight, we'll do their blood pressures, we'll do a kind of a nice easy warm up, and then we'll have them do like three different stations um, for about 10 minutes on each one, if they can. Some of them might have a little more trouble than others, um, but that's what we're looking at, trying to build that strength and endurance up. And the sessions are an hour a day, three days a week for 36 sessions. The rehab consists of four phases. Walsh says phase one is after surgery as an inpatient at a hospital to start strengthening their heart or lungs before being discharged out. Phase two is when you're on the monitor, when you come up to rehab, and then once you've hit phase three, which is when you're off the monitor, so when you no longer have a, you know, the EKG monitor system on, then they're kind of considered phase three. Walsh says phase four is just exercising for fun. The goal is for patients to adjust their lifestyle to have a healthier heart and lungs, which Walsh and his team strive for. That it builds that strength and endurance up so they're able to do things at home without, you know, like tiring out, you know, so we want them to be able to do what their normal activity is and hopefully more. Walsh says cardiopulmonary rehab is an excellent choice for people who need guidance after a heart or lung surgery. But it's one of those things that's kind of a life-changing thing. Until you experience it, you don't really know. Um, and it's one of those things that I think that they just need that support. You know, they need something, they need that guidance. You know, somebody to kind of help them out and what they should be doing. You know, is this normal? Is this not normal? How important is cardiac rehab after someone has an event like that, Tom? Uh, cardiac rehab is absolutely imperative. We at least offer it to all of our patients yeah. after they've had uh, an acute coronary syndrome event, heart attack, or have had a stent, uh, mm -hmm. or have heart failure. You know, it's very important getting patients back on their feet, 
there's been plenty of data showing mortality benefit for patients who complete cardiac rehab. Mm -hmm. So not only does it provide supervised exercise and gets patients going again, but there's a lot of education pieces that are really important sure. in terms of diet and lifestyle changes. So, you know, it's something that's critical to the longitudinal management of, of coronary disease. Yeah, and luckily I found even in very small hospitals in South Dakota, cardiac rehab is available. I think I have patients who've done it in DeSmet, South Dakota, for example, so accessible for a lot of our patients. Um, we were talking a little bit over the break about something that's come up a lot in my clinic, coronary calcium screening. So can you tell us a little bit, John, what is a coronary calcium score um, and, and what's the meaning of this? Yeah, so coronary calcium score we're looking at is we're getting a CT scan of the mm -hmm. chest and the heart. We're looking, how, at, looking at how much calcification there is of the coronary arteries. And we're using that to really determine a risk of cardiac events over time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have narrowing of the heart arteries themselves. And so, you know, I tell folks in clinic when I see them for, that have coronary calcium screening and their score is elevated that the heart artery has three layers. That calcium could be in any layer, but what really matters is the calcium that's impinging flow and in the mm -hmm. inner layer. And so if somebody has a elevated coronary calcium score, depending on how high it is, it may change their risk or how we determine their risk of events over time. So risk for heart attack, um, cardiac arrest, and things like that, mm -hmm. um, or needing a stent. And so that changes medical management. So somebody who is otherwise not on a low dose aspirin or right. a high intensity statin, so like Lipitor or Crestor, mm -hmm. that may push us as providers to help prescribe that for them. Mm -hmm. And our guidelines, if the calcium score is you know, above a certain point, we do do some stress testing mm -hmm. just to see in case somebody's having, you know, they don't do enough activity to elicit you know, sure. coronary symptoms and so forth. So we'll do that too. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have blockages or anything like that that needs mm -hmm. stenting. Um, and the other thing too is that if you've had a coronary calcium score and it's high, you don't, we don't trend coronary calcium scores. So once it's high, it's high. You know, no matter what people say, I tell them you don't need another one. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to go do that. That's okay. But we do need to make sure you're taking your medications and you're mm -hmm. seeing your providers and staying on top of those risk factors. Yeah, good. What, um, how, how do you use that in clinic? So there's kind of cutoffs for scores, I suppose. Right, some people right. get stress tests, some people you do a symptom review and reassure them. How does that go when you get a consult about a high coronary calcium score? Yeah, so you know, generally when we see these patients in clinic, you, know, you, you have a calcium score that's generated and then it, a percentile based on your age mm -hmm. and gender. Um, and basically we're looking at you know, what your risk would be of an event down the road. So anything, a calcium score above 400 puts you in a higher risk category. Mm -hmm. So usually when we see these patients, we'll talk to them about symptoms. Uh, you know, if it's somebody who's active and has zero symptoms, don't necessarily need to do further testing, but really focus or hone in on risk factor modification. So like John talked about, mm -hmm. are there medications that we can start to reduce the risk of a cardiovascular event down the road? Statin medications, controlling cl cholesterol and blood pressure, getting the diabetes under better control, stop mm -hmm. smoking, a low dose aspirin, those types of things. If it's somebody who doesn't you know, do a lot of activity, then and is completely asymptomatic, then we'll think about stress testing mm -hmm. for additional risk stratification. If there are any exertional symptoms, then that would be an indication sure. to investigate further. Right. And I tell people, sometimes people will ask me, should I get this done? And that's kind of a hard question to answer. First, I look for symptoms, because if you're having symptoms, then this is not the right test in most cases. No, would you agree, right. John? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, if you're having symptoms, you need a, you need a stress test. Yeah. 
because this isn't telling you what the actual blood flow right. of the heart muscle is. This is just saying there is calcium or there isn't, and it can change what your overall risk is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But don't try to interpret these things by yourself, yeah. right? Yeah. Get an expert right. opinion. Okay, right. yeah. good. We got a question um, from Iowa about what does it mean for heart muscles to be stiffening? Um, so I don't know if this person was told this based on an <clears throat> echo result or, or exactly what. So how would you respond to that? Yeah, so, you know, generally in the cardiology world, we talk about that as um, the old term was kind of diastolic dysfunction. So when the heart contracts, we call that systole. When it relaxes, we call it diastole. So when the heart over time gets a little bit stiff or thickened um, and doesn't relax as well as it should, it can elevate pressures inside the heart. Mm -hmm. The Particularly on the left side of the heart, the lungs drain into that side, and so those pressures get pushed back on the lungs and can cause symptoms like shortness of breath and things like that. Usually it's something that happens over time. There's certain uh, types of disease processes that can cause it, but usually it's more, you know, aging, high blood pressure over time. Uh, and generally, you know, the first thing to do is um, start a good exercise regimen mm -hmm. and again, sort of modify uh, risk factors, blood pressure, fluid status, those types of things. Sure. But, but that's essentially what it means is that the, you know, the main pumping chambers become stiff a little bit over time. Sure. Um, all right, we got a viewer wondering why hypertension is commonly treated with three separate medications. I guess let's just talk about hypertension a little bit. Um, and um, what, what kind of heart disease do we see as a result of hypertension that's untreated? What do you see in your practice, John? That yeah, so you know, hypertension sure. could be one of two things. It yeah. can be, well, I want to say essential, because high sure. blood pressure is never essential, but primary. So yeah. people just have high blood pressure for a cause we don't necessarily know or secondary due to mm -hmm. some other organ dysfunction that raises the blood pressure. Um, but the, the comorb or the things that can happen with untreated high blood pressure, you can have problems with stroke, heart attack, kidney disease. You can have diastolic dysfunction and, and heart failure mm -hmm. from that, so where the heart doesn't want to relax appropriately. Um, sometimes it can even affect your heart valves and so forth, but that's typically what, what we see. Yeah. 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 And to this question, I mean, some people have excellent control of their hypertension with a single medication, and some people it's four or five medications, and I don't have a great answer for why that is always. I don't know what you tell right. patients. And, you know, sometimes blood pressure is best treated by hitting it at different angles, yeah. what I sort of tell patients. So all these drugs have different mechanisms, mm -hmm. and we kind of choose from different classes based on the mechanism. And sometimes blood pressure that's hard to control, it, instead of going up and up and up on one medication, it's better to hit it from a few different angles to get it under better control. Mm -hmm. Good question though. Yeah. Um, what can cause a complete AV block when there seem to be no warning signs? Um, interesting question. I just saw a case of this in my clinic recently. So um, what is complete AV block, Tom, and um, is there a cause to it? So complete AV block, you know, usually there's there's chambers of the heart. So the top chamber usually starts the electrical signal conduction, and then that passes through a node uh, called the AV node, and then passes down to the bottom chamber to cause it to, mm -hmm. to contract, to the bottom chambers to contract. Complete AV block is essentially a block in that electrical highway or the electrical fibers there where the top chamber and bottom chambers aren't communicating through there. Um, you know, generally that's due to fibrosis or aging of the yeah. conduction system. There are certain types of infections, Lyme disease, that can cause mm -hmm. complete heart block, but generally it's more, you know, aging of the conduction system in, mm -hmm. in our practice. And 
the way to, to treat that is generally a, a pacemaker. Yeah, yeah. It, it can be caused, and this throws them an acute heart attack as well. Mm -hmm. um, that's a little bit different uh, in terms of management sometimes. Um, but, but generally, you know, those patients will need a, a pacemaker if there's no identifiable or reversible cause. Sure, good. Um, a related question, can pacemakers cause heart failure and valvular regurgitation because of a lead passing through the valve? Have you seen that at yeah, all, John? Yeah, 100% mm -hmm. you can. So the way the pacemaker goes in is typically through a vein in the arm, and that mm -hmm. goes down to the right side of the heart and goes through the tricuspid valve. And depending on where that lead sits along the tricuspid valve, it can hold open the leaflets and cause it to leak, and sometimes leak severely. Mm -hmm. If that happens, yeah, folks can have problems with heart failure, um, usually on the right side of the heart, not necessarily the left sure. side of the heart. Um, sometimes, if you somebody's paced 100% of the time for a long period of time, you can have left-sided mm -hmm. heart failure from that too. But generally, it can cause tricuspid regurgitation and, and right-sided heart failure, yeah. This person, interestingly, actually asked about mitral valve regurgitation, which shouldn't be a pacemaker-related issue. No, but sometimes getting a certain type of pacemaker can, can fix yeah. mitral regurgitation. So mm -hmm. if you have heart failure, and you have what's called the left bundle branch block and you get a biventricular pacemaker, a lot of times the regurgitation go completely away. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. All right, we have a caller who says they can ride a bike with ease but struggles walking a half a block. And he's curious if this problem might have to do with his heart. How would you counsel that patient? Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly it could be a cardiac issue. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sometimes when you're when you're upright or you know doing more strenuous activity like climbing stairs and things like that, that's where we can see cardiac mm -hmm. manifestations. Uh, you know, when we stress patients, you know, sometimes we can do it with a with a bicycle, stationary bicycle mm -hmm. versus a treadmill, and you'll see that it's actually harder to get the heart rate up uh, on a stationary bicycle. Mm -hmm. So it may just be a difference in the level of physiologic uh, stress there. Mm -hmm. Not always, but you know that may be contributing. Sure. So it might be worth looking into the, for that person. Um, we have a Facebook question, uh, a relative of this person chews tobacco. Can chewing tobacco have consequences similar to smoking in regards to the cardiovascular risk? John, what would you say about that? It's a little different. I mean, yeah. there's some risk, but really with smoking is the toxins that get into your lungs and then get into your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. I mean, the biggest thing with chewing tobacco is oral cancer, right? right? So right. we still recommend not to do that. Yeah. But, yeah, not, not probably as much, but yeah. we'd still love for that person to be able to quit. Yeah. Um, we have a caller curious about our options for rehab if the insurance company says that cardiac rehab is not necessary. It might be a hard question to answer, but for what indications do we always recommend cardiac rehab? It's not for everything. It's not for everything, and you know, part of that is reimbursement and mm -hmm. what is covered by insurance for patients so they don't have to pay out of pocket mm -hmm. for that. Um, you know, indications if you've had a heart attack or an acute coronary event, um, if you have heart failure, mm -hmm. if you've had a, a heart procedure done, cardiac surgery, you've had a stent put in, some of the structural uh, interventions, mm -hmm. you know, those are all generally covered by insurance and, mm -hmm. and indicated uh, for, uh, for patients to undergo cardiac rehab. Uh, you know, options if your insurance company won't, won't pay for it, you know, there's still options in terms of, um, you know, being part of a cardiac rehab program, mm -hmm. but you know, sometimes insurance companies are very specific about what types of um, things that they'll cover you know, based on your cardiac condition or procedures that you've had done. Yeah. And they'll cover only so much in a given year too. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, so if you have had multiple issues, sometimes you only do a certain amount of sessions before they say you've maxed that out. So I've seen okay. that a few times with my patients okay. as far as reimbursement and coverage. Okay. 
Um, well, a healthy cardiac system is important to everyone. What ways can we continue to keep a healthy cardiac system? Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower has more on this. Dr. Jose Tashura is a cardiologist with Monument Health in Rapid City, and he says coronary artery disease is the most common type of cardiovascular disease to die from. About 80% of heart disease is due to coronary artery disease, and that is blockage in the arteries in the heart. Coronary artery disease and most other heart diseases are developed from an unhealthy lifestyle. The coronary artery disease is a foodborne illness and is caused by bad nutrition and not good lifestyle. Risk factors that come into play are typical for an unhealthy lifestyle. If you have high blood pressure, if you have a high cholesterol, if you have diabetes, if you smoke, if you have a family history of coronary heart disease, uh, all of those risk factors increase your likelihood you're going to develop heart disease and die from heart disease. There is no question about that. With all these risk factors, Dr. Tashura says diet is the most important part to a healthy cardiac system. Even exercise with a poor diet doesn't help you. Exercise is great, it's very important as well, but you cannot exercise yourself out of a bad diet. You can't, if you exercise vigorously one hour a day and you have a terrible diet, you're still going to get into trouble with atherosclerosis and coronary artery disease and strokes and so on. According to Dr. Tashura, increasing daily fruit and vegetable intake benefits your heart health dramatically. Another food he brings up, which was tested in multiple studies to improve heart health, is chili peppers. There was an interesting study actually came on the Journal of American College Cardiology in 2019 about uh, chili peppers. And it was a study done in Italy. If you will eat chili peppers, you also decrease your uh, cardiovascular mortality, your stroke mortality, and cancer mortality. He also says any chili pepper will do, and that it doesn't have to burn your mouth. Season your food with chili peppers, great for you. It doesn't have to be you know, the hottest of the hot. But for Dr. Tashura, a healthy cardiac system in patients is incredibly important to him, and taking care of your heart is a matter of commitment. We only have one heart, and the heart pumps about five liters or more per minute and we it takes the blood to the rest of the body to uh, bring nutrition and energy to all the tissues in the body, you know, from your head to your toes. So uh, the, the, the heart is absolutely crucial. So what do you t counsel patients on? Maybe they've come in and they've had a heart attack and you're discharging them from the hospital about things like diet, like Dr. Tashira was talking about. Yeah, so I mean, he made some great points yeah. there. We usually focus more on the Mediterranean yeah. style diet, which is more of an anti-inflammatory diet. So, you know, lots of fruits, vegetables, uh, whole grains, olive oil, anti-inflammatory foods like that, leaner proteins, you know, more fish and chicken. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, th for patients with struggle with high blood pressure, um, you know, keeping the salt or sodium intake low, mm -hmm. that's also important for heart failure patients as sure. well. But, you know, in, in general, uh, you know, the Mediterranean diet has been 
you know, shown to decrease your risk of having recurrent cardiovascular events and increase your mortality or decrease your mortality. Yeah. So. And really, like, there's been a lot of diet research about weight loss and and cardiovascular events, and Mediterranean is kind of what's panned out. Yeah, it wins for everything so yeah. far. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we actually had a question about heart failure. What is heart failure? What are the common symptoms? What do we mean by that? Yeah, so heart failure is a syndrome. It can be either because your heart's weak and can't pump blood out of the heart, or stiff like we talked about mm -hmm. earlier and the heart can't fill appropriately and blood backs up. And so symptoms you can have with that is you can feel short of breath, you can have swelling in your legs, you can have fatigue, you can have trouble sleeping because you can't lay down because you feel like you're drowning sometimes, mm -hmm. you gotta prop yourself up. But again, it's a syndrome that can be caused by multiple different things is really kind of the mm -hmm. end stage of some of the heart diseases that we that we treat commonly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so kind of a big bucket of lots yeah. of different mm -hmm. things that can lead to that. Um, we had an emailer question. Uh, I had a heart attack and stents implanted several years ago in my 50s. Am I destined to have heart failure as I get older? And is it diagnosed by symptoms? So what symptoms would this person watch for? And would you say that they're destined to have heart failure if they've had a cardiac event like that? No, absolutely yeah. not. I mean, while plumbing issues or you know issues with the arterial supply or blood supply to the heart muscle can be a cause of heart mm -hmm. failure, uh, you know, just because you've had stents or have coronary artery disease does not mean that you're destined to have heart failure. Mm -hmm. Just as John uh, alluded to, you know, the symptoms to watch out for would be, you know, worsening shortness of breath, having fluid retention issues, swelling, those types mm -hmm. of things. Um, but, you know, it doesn't mean that you're, you're destined to have heart failure by any means. Yeah, good. Um, we have a viewer who had COVID in August and has experienced heart flutters ever since. Is there a correlation, or I guess, could you talk about, are there correlations with COVID-19 infection and any heart diseases? Yeah, there are, so a lot of it, unfortunately. You know, at one point there was a study early on in the pandemic where it you know, showed about 40% of people have some sort of cardiac involvement after they've had COVID. And it can be an array of things, whether it's myocarditis or so forth, but specifically fluttering and, and palpitations. Mm -hmm. So for the, yeah, we do see it quite a bit. You probably see it yeah. as well. And what we've noticed is that, you know, a lot of folks will have their heart rates go up um, randomly without really even doing much activity. It can be very distressing. Some people think, or some of us think, that it might be related to dysfunction of part of the nervous system that mm -hmm. controls our resting heart rates. There's some cross-reactivity of um, antibodies with the nervous system mm -hmm. that can affect your heart rate. And so, you know, treating that can be, can be difficult, but there's definitely a correlation, and we see it every day in clinic right now. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what do you What do you advise those patients to do? Do you put them on medicines at times, or? You know, generally we we do some additional workup to make sure that there's yeah. not some sort of abnormal rhythm going mm -hmm. on, or there's a structural issue from uh, COVID infection mm -hmm. itself. But generally, we try to. A lot of times, they're you know patients who are previously very active or sure. younger patients who notice it. Uh, we generally try to avoid medications if we can. You know, sometimes we have to use uh, medications, mm -hmm. at least in the short term. It tends to improve over time. There's also probably a deconditioning component, mm -hmm. you know, from being ill. So we generally recommend, you know, regular exercise regimen, adequate fluid intake, sometimes some compression stockings for those, uh, those types of mm -hmm. symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, but generally, you know, a medication isn't required long sure. term, at least. Yeah, but that might be something real that that patient is noticing, right. for sure. Um, let's see, we have a caller from Sioux Falls who was diagnosed with congestive heart failure and is taking 80 milligrams of Lasix or furosemide. What's the highest dose you can take of furosemide? 
as much as you need. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, 80 milligrams is not uncommon. Yeah. All it depends is how well you absorb it, which mm -hmm. is different for everybody, what your kidney function is, mm -hmm. because if your kidney function is not as good, you need higher doses for the medication to work. Um, you know, and there's different types of diuretics you can use. Yeah. Some work a little bit better than others, but um, you know, I mean, you can give a couple hundred milligrams a day, and mm -hmm. you know what? So again, whatever it takes to get the job done. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. We had a caller who had a pacemaker put in, but found out that she no longer needs it. What are the risks and benefits of getting it removed? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, it depends a little bit on how what the device is and how long it's been in place. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those leads tend to, to scar in place over time, uh, which increases the risk of trying to remove it, not to say that it can't be done, uh, but it, if it's something that hasn't been in there very long, then the risk is probably relatively low to have mm -hmm. that uh, explanted or taken out, but if it's been in there a long time, that certainly increases the, the risk of, of removing that. Got it, okay. Um, let's see, we've got a viewer, we, we talked a little bit about atrial fibrillation and rhythm control. This viewer has had several cardioversions. Two have it worked, would it be okay to have another? Um, can you tell us what it, what's a cardioversion? How often do they work for, let's make an assumption this was for atrial fibrillation, maybe it was for something else, but. Yeah, so yeah. cardioversion is where you give the heart an electrical shock mm -hmm. to try to jumpstart it back into rhythm essentially. 70%, 80% first time. It all depends mm -hmm. on the individual patient of mm -hmm. how successful it will be. Um, folks who have untreated sleep apnea, it's very hard for cardioversions to work. Mm -hmm. um, if you already have structural heart disease, it could be a problem. But if you've had two and it hasn't worked, could you do a third? Yeah, obviously you could do a third, but I, that's a time where I would start seeing electrophysiologists talk about an ablation yeah. or antiarrhythmic medications. And a lot of times our electrophysiology colleagues, even after an ablation or especially after prescribing antiarrhythmic medications, will then try another cardioversion with that mm -hmm. medication in your system to help. Sure. And a lot of times it can work. Um, but I, I would probably add something in addition to just doing another cardioversion at this point. Try to set yourself up for success of yeah. maintaining yeah. normal rhythm or restoring it. Good. Yeah. Um, you mentioned sleep apnea. This person had a question, if you're a side sleeper, what side is best to, for you to sleep on for your heart? Are there any good sort of sleep tips for heart health that you would have? Yeah, I'm not sure there's a side that yeah, makes I've a difference uh, cardiac-wise, yes. but uh, <laughs> You know, certainly if you if you sleep on your back and you obstruct mm -hmm. at night, that can create a host of cardiac issues, mm -hmm. including uh, high blood pressure, increases your risk of arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, having good sleep hygiene is important, mm -hmm. you know, for cardiovascular health and decreasing your overall stress hormones. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure that there's an exact position that yeah. is, is desired, but. yeah. I find the electrophysiologists are sending patients back to us for sleep studies more often than I would have expected before I was in practice. So there must be a really strong relationship for those heart rhythm problems. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, cardiovascular health in general, including mm -hmm. heart failure. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah good. Um, this is a great question from email. If you live out in the country an hour from a medical facility, we have those places in our part of the world, and you have a heart attack, is there anything you can do while you're waiting for an ambulance or waiting to get to the hospital? How yeah, would you advise that if you person can, in the boonies? Yeah, if you can take aspirin, do it. Yeah. Obviously call somebody for help right away. Don't try to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and if you have had heart disease and you have sublingual nitroglycerin, mm -hmm. um, carry that with you and use it if you can. Mm -hmm. You know, But don't, don't try to do everything on your own. That's where you can get into trouble. You yeah. Know? So call for help.
Yeah, we deal with, you know, we're, we're used to talk, talking about the cath lab and how we treat heart attacks, but in a huge part of our state, that's not the first thing that we can no, do. What absolutely. do we do? And I mean, even in Brookings, South Dakota, if someone comes in with a ST elevation MI, what are the first things that we do before they find you in the cath lab? Yeah, so, you know, generally we try to, you know, determine what the transfer time would be mm -hmm. to a cath lab where we can manually open up the artery with, with catheters and, and balloons. Um, if, if that transport time is going to be over two hours, then there's medications that we can give. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, those medications include a clot buster drug generally. If there's evidence of an occluded artery on, mm -hmm. the, on the EKG or heart rhythm tracing, uh, to try to restore perfusion or blood flow mm -hmm. through that artery um, before we can get them to a cath lab capable uh, facility. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, the first medications are always aspirin yeah. uh, and sometimes a, a super aspirin like Plavix or Berlinta mm -hmm. and then a blood thinner called heparin or something mm -hmm. along those lines and then, you know, maybe a clot buster drug. Yeah, good. And if someone is at home, how much aspirin are they supposed to take? Well, John? it depends on what you have, but 325 yeah. or four baby aspirins, yeah. that gets okay. you. Yeah. We usually tell patients to chew, chew it. Chew Get it, it yeah. in your system yeah, exactly. as fast chew as possible. Yeah. Great. Um, we have another question from Rapid City. With previous stents, is it necessary to keep on a low dose of aspirin forever? What do you tell people about their aspirin after they've had an intervention? Yeah, so I tell patients, you know, if you have a coronary stent mm -hmm. to stay on a baby aspirin, 81 milligrams daily indefinitely. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where we get into trouble is when patients stop their antiplatelet therapy completely mm -hmm. and then you increase your risk of stent thrombosis or clotting off that that stent. So generally, you know, as long as you're not undergoing a procedure or have major bleeding issues or something that requires you to stop the stop the aspirin, generally we tell patients to stay on that lifelong, at least a baby aspirin. Yeah. And how long after a stent is placed can someone think about having a bigger a surgery that they might need to come off of it for a time? What do you usually what advice I guess it depends on the surgery maybe. It depends on the surgery. Yeah. It also depends on why the stent was placed. Yeah. It depends on your bleeding risk. Yeah. You know, there's some evidence with the newer stents that you could stop it a little sooner, even, you mm -hmm. know, three months if you needed to. Generally the guidelines still say six if it was placed electively for stable angina, mm -hmm. so you're just having sure. symptoms. If you had an acute heart attack, still says a year, mm -hmm. but a lot of times too it depends on the urgency or emergency of that surgery you need. Mm -hmm. Great. So talk to your cardiologist yeah. or, or your doctor about those interruptions in aspirin. Um, we've got a couple minutes left. What do the doctors think about a surgery a viewer has read about that reduces the size of a ventricle to help with coronary artery disease? Ringing any bells? I got nothing. I'm not sure for, <laughs> yeah. for coronary artery disease. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, not for reducing the size of the ventricle. No. Yeah, no. that's not something that I've heard of. But usually, you know, if you have heart failure or, or the ventricle is dilated and it's mm -hmm. from a blood supply issue, you know, revascularizing that can mm -hmm. tend to, to help. Uh, and sometimes, you know, then with good medical therapy, um, can offload the ventricle and, and mm -hmm. decrease the size of it. But I'm not sure of any specific surgical things. Yeah unless they're talking about bypass surgery, you know, to improve the blood supply to the heart muscle, to improve the heart failure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I love this question. So in our last minute, let's tackle this one. How effective are stents in preventing future heart attacks? What would you say about that, John? Yes, there's a lot of controversy, but yeah. not a lot of good data. You know, there's uh -huh. a lot of, it depends on who you talk to. You talk to an interventional cardiologist like us, who say, "Yeah, it really helps." You but and I might disagree a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but honestly, not not really. That's why we yeah. only put it for folks who are having symptoms right. or an acute heart attack. 
So we get a lot of questions of, well, if I'm having surgery, even though I'm not having symptoms, so having surgery for some other reason, should I get screened for coronary artery disease and put a stent in so I don't have a heart attack? Mm -hmm. Well, that we know is not helpful, because right. what do you have to do when you have that surgery? Come off your blood thinners. Right. As Tom just said, you come off your blood thinners, there's risks that the stent can thrombose. Yeah. So you're taking kind of a stable situation and making really an unstable situation. Yeah. So, yeah. So not no. everyone with no. plaque in their arteries needs a stent. No, right. The, and there's the a lot of good it. evidence that medical therapy yeah. is good enough. Right. Number of trials. You take right. your medicines, you can do just fine, awesome. even if your heart functions low. Right. Yeah. Well, the winner of our prize tonight is Ella from Rock Valley, Iowa. Thank you, Ella, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. Based on science built on trust, Grab a copy of your local newspaper to read the Prairie Doc Perspective, a weekly health and medical column. Over 130 newspapers in the region carry the article. Ask your local paper if they print Prairie Doc today. Head to prairiedoc.org to access all archive columns. We are familiar with the scene on television and movies. A person clutches their chest and drops to the ground unconscious. Another character starts chest compressions and help is summoned. Although cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, is often not accurately portrayed in such productions, it serves as a good reminder to all that CPR can save a life. Cardiac arrest is a general term to describe any situation in which the heart stops pumping blood to other organs in the body, most urgently the brain. Cardiac arrest can have many causes, including a massive heart attack or a deadly heart arrhythmia. Regardless of the cause, the most pressing need of any person after a cardiac arrest is, in short, restoring the circulation of oxygen to the brain and other critical organs. The American Heart Association estimates that over 350,000 cardiac arrests occur outside a hospital in the U.S. each year. These events might happen at home or in a public location. If that person is lucky enough to have a bystander educated in CPR present at the time of the cardiac arrest, their odds of surviving that event are hugely improved. The most basic and important component of CPR is effective chest compressions. CPR can also include defibrillation or shocking an electrically malfunctioning heart to restore a normal rhythm. Many public places now keep an automated external defibrillator or AED on hand. A CPR class will teach participants to perform effective CPR and how to use a defibrillator. What can you do? If you have never done so, or if it has been a few years, as all things, the science of CPR has changed and improved, I would encourage you to find a CPR class in your community. If you own or manage a business, consider getting an AED and keeping it in a visible location. I hope you will never have to use these skills, but you could be the reason a family member or complete stranger survives an otherwise fatal event. Cardiac rest is a common cause of death, but bystander CPR can be life-saving. If you are able, consider learning this heroic skill.
thank you to our guests, Dr. Waterbury and Dr. Wagoner, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about the cardiovascular system and disease. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. So from all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thank you for joining us for another episode of health information based on science, built on trust. And until next time, stay healthy out there, people. education needs to undertake a holistic approach rather than just treating pathology. When learning the art of medicine, trainees and physicians build empathy, communication, and teamwork skills. The importance of humanities in medicine, next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. Based on science, built on trust. Join us in supporting the Prairie Docs as we enter our 21st season. Hello, my name is Dave Heink, and I serve on the volunteer board of the Healing Words Foundation. 501c3 charity that secures funding for Prairie Doc programming. This past year we celebrated 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information from our four Prairie Docs, each of whom volunteers their time to answer important health questions. Thank you to our viewers who continue to help make this programming possible. You are making a difference for public health information in our state. Your donation allows us to continue to deliver on Rick and Joni Holmes' mission, set out over two decades ago. As a friend, supporter, and volunteer for this organization, I believe in its mission, and I know the vital impact it makes in our communities. Please continue to follow us on social media, on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and YouTube. If you're so inclined, you may make a donation online at prairiedoc.org. Prefer not to donate online? Reach out to us via email and our staff will send you a pledge form. Thanks again for supporting our mission and Prairie Doc programming. Medical information based on science, built on trust. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by at Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, 
Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications. 